When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and this is another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, the one and only Chris Fedor. Chris, we're going to start off with a segment that's all for you. Oh, thanks. It's your favorite time of the week, subtexters, our subscribers. It's Hey Chris. So, the first question that we got is from... Jim from New Mexico, who on the team or front office found Craig Porter Jr.? <laughs> He's got a two-parter, Chris, but we're we going we gonna to start there. Who on the team or front office found Craig Porter Jr.? Well, I think the people inside the front office will tell you the same thing, Ethan. They'll say that when it comes to the decision-making for the organization, it's a collaborative effort. That's what they've said since they got here. But from everything that that I was told, president of basketball operations, Kobe Altman, was a big Craig Porter Jr. fan. And he was a guy who was really interested in trying to get a second draft pick on draft night after drafting Imani Bates. They were not able to do that, but because they had an open two-way slot and they had conversations with Craig Porter Jr. following his workout when he came to town... They were able to let him know, hey, if you don't get drafted, we're interested in getting you on a two-way contract. So it was a whole front office collaboration, but it seemed like this was a Kobe Altman pick more than anybody else. And Jim's second question is, since he's limited to 50 games and no postseason, is there any thought to making him in a permanent roster spot with the Cavs? I certainly don't think they have to do that right now. That may be a conversation that they have to have down the road if they feel like this is somebody that they need to be on the playoff roster, especially when at that point in time, they'll have more clarity on the Ricky Rubio situation. It's something that I think they will consider down the road. It doesn't need to happen now. And they have to be really, really careful here too, because Ethan, they are very, very close to the luxury tax. And that is not a situation that they want to get into. And I've been told multiple times by multiple people, they will not cross the luxury tax threshold this year. All right, moving on to the next question from Mark and Copley. What is the scoop with Damian Jones? These questions are straight to the point, Chris. Is he officially the third big behind Tristan now? Also, if Rubio does not return, what position would you add now with his salary in a trade? Well, that's an interesting point because... Ricky does have value around the NBA, I think, based on his contract. Because there are a lot of teams that have to be really, really cognizant of their spending. And Ricky, when he signed with the Cavs last offseason, he signed a three-year, $18 million contract. But, like, the last year of that deal has a partial guarantee. So 
it gives a little bit of salary cap relief to another team if they want to trade for him. And look, the truth is, given his current situation, the fact that he's away from the team focusing on his mental health, the fact that he hasn't played professional basketball in months, and the fact that the last time we saw him play professional basketball in the playoffs against the Knicks, he wasn't himself, he wasn't effective, and J.B. Bickerstaff felt like he couldn't even play him. So anybody that would want to theoretically trade for Ricky would be doing it understanding that he wasn't going to be impact player on the court, but it was more about his contract. And I think that gives him a little bit of a value to some team that is looking to clear some salary cap space into the future. In terms of the position, I don't know that the Cavs, obviously point guard comes to mind, given that the only healthy backup point guard right now for the Cavs is an undrafted rookie free agent in Craig Porter Jr. And the more and more he gets on the scouting report of the other team, maybe the less effective he can be. It's just like, given his background, given his situation, it's tough to like look at this depth chart and say, if, if he was the full-time backup, we'd be comfortable in that spot. I, I just don't think the Cavs can be there when it comes to big picture planning quite yet. I think they'd always be on the hunt for a three and D type player. That's the hardest thing to find in the NBA. Maybe they would take a look at their depth in the front court, either at the four position or the five position. But I don't know that if you look at this roster right now, you sit there and say, okay, there is a glaring weak point that must be addressed at the trade deadline. And if it doesn't get addressed at the trade deadline, the Cavs can't reach their goals. As for the first part of the question, it kind of ties into what I was saying there about the 4-5 position. Damian Jones came into this year as the backup center. The Cavs signed him this offseason because they liked him. They liked his upside. They thought there was untapped potential there. First few games, he looked like he was unplayable. He just was not very effective out there. And Tristan Thompson, at this stage of his career, gives the Cavs a little bit more comfort and reliability at the backup center spot. And it's not to sit here and say Tristan is giving them great minutes and he's unbelievably effective when he gets out there on the court and you can't possibly take him out of the rotation. No, 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 no. It's just that his minutes have been better than Damian Jones at the beginning of the season. So right now... I think there's more trust when it comes to Tristan Thompson than Damian Jones. Moving on to the next one. Mitch from Reno, Nevada says... We got subscribers from all over the country, man. I love it. We are worldwide. I remember last week there was people from San Diego. Oh, I love it. How concerned are you and JB about Garland's high turnover numbers? I think it depends, honestly, Ethan, what kinds of turnovers they are. And I know that sounds really coach-speaky, but I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? Darius is the kind of player that because there's a flamboyance to his game and because the ball in his, is in his hands as much as it is and because the pace that the Cavs want to play at, I do think there are going to be times where he turns the ball over and the Cavs as a team turn the ball over. And I think you live with turnovers every now and then if you complete enough passes and if you can make some passes that other guys at the position can't make. The ones that the Cavs cannot live with are the live ball turnovers 
that puts so much pressure on the defense the other way. And when Darius is just making lazy, sloppy passes, and there have been way too many of those so far this year, if we're being honest. That happened in the Oklahoma City game where he had eight of them. Many of those were just like entry passes that were thrown as a secondary thought and with a little bit too much finesse and a little bit too much laziness. That happened against Golden State as well. I think it happened against the Detroit Pistons the other night when he had five. But like, those are the kinds of passes that I think are going to hurt this team and bother J.B. Bickerstaff more than some of the other ones that Darius is going to continue to have and has had at the beginning of this season. In saying all of that, Ethan, like his number overall so far this year is just way too high. Like five turnovers from the engine of the offense, the head of the snake is is a little bit too much, especially when there's only 5.7 assists attached to that. If he was averaging eight, nine assists and committing four to five turnovers, I think it would be easier to live with those and justify those. But the assist numbers aren't high enough for, for his turnover ratio. All right, Chris, last question. And I am glad that this person asked this because I asked you this on the last podcast episode that we have. But because we're doing Hey Chris and we want to include the listeners, I'm going to ask it again. Is there a chance that Craig Porter Jr. stays in the rotation when Ty Jerome comes back? Boy, everybody's asking about Craig Porter Jr. That's what I'm saying. Hey, man. (laughs) You were undrafted rookie and dropped 21 points. You're going to get some notoriety. Look, the story's great. The way that he has played has been very, very impressive. He doesn't look rattled. He doesn't look phased. He looks composed as a 23-year-old kid. And I think there's a level of maturity to his game. And I think there's a level of readiness to his game that doesn't exist with somebody like Imani Bates, which is why... You know, when the question came at the beginning of the year, how much playing time is Amani Bates going to get with the Cavs? I was like, look, you're looking at the wrong rookie. It's Craig Porter Jr. Like at 23 years old, with all of that experience, all of that know-how, all of that maturity, he's got a better chance on an NBA court at this stage of his career. Doesn't mean that he's got as much upside down the road or anything along those lines, but there's just a level of readiness to his game that I think he has shown and has been very, very impressive. In saying that, like, I think when Ty Jerome gets healthy, whenever that is, I think he's going to have a hard time getting consistent minutes. Dean Wade is somebody who has a hard time at times getting consistent minutes. And he's been a fill-in starter for the last week and a half or so. Because I just think everybody on every NBA team has a specific role. And sometimes your role is when guys are out, step up and be ready. And Craig Porter Jr. has done that. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. But baked into that role is a level of uncertainty about what happens when the team is closer to full strength. It's just like Dean Wade baked into his role is a level of uncertainty about whether he's going to get consistent playing time when the team is at full strength. It's just the reality of being the eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th guy, whatever on a roster that only likes to play nine, 10 guys in a rotation. So, you know, Darius is going to be a high minute player. Donovan Mitchell, Max Strews, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, same thing. Karis LeVert, Isaac Okoro, 
their roles are established. George Niang, his role is established. I think they're going to continue to go to him and let him work through his shooting struggles and things along those lines. And then you start talking about the ninth spot. I think it's going to depend on um, matchup. I think it's going to depend on game flow. I think it's going to depend on situation and what has transpired leading up to that. And for that ninth spot, it's going to be either Dean Wade or Tristan Thompson or Ty Jerome or Craig Porter Jr. So if Ty Jerome is going to have a hard time getting consistent minutes, I think Craig Porter Jr. is going to have a hard time too. I think he has earned the minutes that he has gotten to this point. I think he has certainly given J.B. Bickerstaff something to decide when Ty Jerome comes back and how much faith they're going to put in Ty versus Craig and who's going to be more effective. But I don't think that that Craig Porter Jr. has played to a level where J.B. is like, okay, I'm going to extend my rotation to 10 or 11 on a nightly basis because I need to get you out there. This is still a rookie. This is still an undrafted rookie. This is still a 23-year-old player that's getting his feet wet in the NBA. And this is a team that has playoff aspirations, that has a set eight-man rotation when fully healthy, and the ninth is going to continue to fluctuate. And on that note, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we are going to talk about the culture of the Cavaliers. Before then, subscribe to Subtext, which is a way to become a Cavs insider with insight from myself and Chris that won't be on your everyday social media platforms. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. All right, Chris, I want to ask you, what is the culture over the years that you think J.B. Bickerstaff has implemented into this Cavs roster? Look, I mean, obviously their identity is a defense first team. That's not changing. That's what J.B. Bickerstaff has built this organization on. And in terms of culture, you know, they have these buzzwords and stuff like that. But I think it's about togetherness. I think it's about competitiveness. I think it's about selflessness. Those would be the terms that stand out to me most when trying to define the kind of culture that that JB has put in place here. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for laying that foundation and getting a relatively young team that has a lot of guys that have their own individual aspirations to buy into the team style that is going to consistently win games. And speaking of culture, we all know that the fans, when the trade happened, were hoping that Max Struess would bring some Miami love and some Miami Heat culture over to the Cavs. Do you think he has the potential to change the culture that the Cavs have with his infectious play and attitude? Because honestly, I think he already has. In what way? 
I don't think he's changed the culture, but I think he's helped adjust it to allow players to realize the importance of just getting after it at every time the ball is bouncing on the court. Like, he is a player that I've seen and that J.B. Bickerstaff has mentioned that just simply gets after it. Like, it doesn't matter if it's practice. It doesn't matter if it's during the game. It doesn't matter if he just made a turnover. He's going to do that. And I think the accountability that he holds on the players of this is how you win, this is how you are going to be successful, is something that the Cavs, who kind of, from my knowledge of the team, were like, we are going to take our time to figure this thing out. And that's simply not Max's mindset, especially with the roster in this lineup that they have. It's there is an opportunity to win, so why not just win now? This is interesting because I think Max is really, really important to it. He has seen things that these other guys haven't seen. He knows what it takes to a level that these other guys don't. So I think the Cavs are leaning on his experience and his knowledge and his leadership. But I don't think this culture needed to be fixed, right? I think this culture needed to be enhanced. And that, I think, is what Max has done. There's just... Because there was already a culture of accountability. The team won 51 games and got to the playoffs. But there's just like a different standard that I feel Max has for himself and for a team on a daily basis. And it's interesting because, like I said, you know he's at a certain stage of his career, and George Niang is at a certain stage of his career, and Tristan Thompson, same thing. They understand what it takes on a daily basis. Darius Garland just doesn't, right, because he hasn't been through it, because he hasn't failed enough. Because he hasn't seen enough in his career. And you can say the same thing about Evan Mobley. And you can say the same thing about Isaac Okoro and some of these other guys. So Max, to me, it's just the standard that he brings to every day. The standard that he sets at practice and shoot around. Here's something that I think is hilarious about Max. And this kind of like gets into who he is, his mindset, and all that kind of stuff. Ethan, he will not take part in post shoot around shooting. He will not do it. Like if you're on the road and all these guys are gathering on the court and they're just taking these jumpers, that's what teams do before they board the bus. And you've got Tristan shooting shots and Darius and Karras. Basically the whole roster has assembled on two different baskets to take all of these warm up jumpers to get in all the work that they can possibly get in before they board the bus to go back to the team hotel. Max will not do that because he doesn't find value in that because he doesn't think he gains anything by a bunch of people shooting at the same basket at the same time as him. So he gets to shoot around about 30 minutes before everybody else to shoot by himself in an empty gym where there are no distractions. There are no ball bouncing in his way. And it's just a different environment right? That takes you into his kind of mindset and the way that he treats shoot-arounds and practices and games. And he just won't let this team, and the same thing with George Niang, they have a way of not allowing this team, and they feel like this is their role because they have been there, done that, not allowing this team to settle for anything less than great because they see the potential with this team and they want that potential to be realized but they understand better the steps that it takes to get there than some of these young guys. 
And I think we talk about the players that he has to have around him to do that. So I wanted to ask you, is there been a rotation that has proven itself that maybe JV should lean on more? Or do you just feel like you enjoy watching these guys on the court more together? Like, when I think about it, I understand that with all the injuries, it's hard to determine. But obviously, the starting lineup is imposing. And the other lineup that I've been liking that they put together is when they had Darius Garland and Porter Jr. I know we've talked about him a lot, but DG, CPJ, and Max Struess, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen. Because you think about it, and I don't know if there are a lot of defenses that can guard CPJ and Darius Garland one-on-one. Easy. What? You don't know if there are a lot of defenses that can guard that. Come on now. Let's no, no, not no, no. get carried what, away what, No, no, no. Listen, listen, listen to me. One-on-one going headfirst to the basket when you have the opportunity and the knowledge to drive to the basket with your head up like CPJ does and kick out to Max Struess. I'm not saying on, on a one-on-one scenario can defenses guard this. I'm saying with the outlet open, to someone to knowing that you have Max Struess in the corner or at the top of the key, ready to let it fly, or Darius Garland and CPJ both driving into the paint and having Evan Mobley sitting at the free throw line, able to knock that shot down on occasion. So I think that mixture of players together can, without the starting lineup that they want, brings out an interesting combination that allows for scoring in the paint and lob threats with both Evan and Jared, but also you have shooting threat with Max Struess and the opportunity to create open looks for him with drives to the basket. I think we're too early in the season to read too much into five-player lineups, four-player lineups, two-player lineups, things like that, or at least make definitive declarations or conclusions about what they are and what they can be. I will say this, though. I think... Every best five-man lineup that the Cavs can muster together is going to have Max Struess in it. I think he is one of the most important players that they have on this team. I think he is one of the most impactful players that they have on this team. And I think he has a way of impacting the game and impacting lineups without putting up gaudy numbers or even knocking down four, five, six threes, something like that. The gravity that he brings, the attention that he commands everywhere he goes, the movement that he brings, the diversification that he brings to this offense. It's all stuff that they just did not have last year. And it's all stuff that was exposed in the playoffs against the Knicks. So even though I understand that he has some limitations on the defensive end of the floor, any five-man lineup that you can throw out there, whether it's... Donovan Darius in the backcourt, Donovan Karras in the backcourt, Darius Karras in the backcourt, whatever the case may be, the linchpin of, I think, every best five-man lineup that the Cavs can put out there is Max Struess. I agree, and I want to get into one more controversial topic for today to end the show. Everybody on social media... All Cavs fans, Eastern Conference followers, all that jazz have been calling for J.B. Bickerstaff's dismissal since the beginning of the season. Since the playoffs, really. If J.B. Bickerstaff 
and the Cleveland Cavaliers are able to pull off a win in Philadelphia against the 76ers after beating the defending champs in the Denver Nuggets. No. What did I say wrong? No, I'm saying it's not going to stop. Oh, no. I, I, I know it's not going to stop. But do you think it calls for a formal apology? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Fins are going to be fins. And JB knows this. And, and he touched on it a little bit following the game against Denver, Ethan. The judgment for this team is no longer what happens in the regular season. They've already reached that level as an organization. And it doesn't mean that the regular season doesn't matter. And it doesn't mean that they can just throw away games in the regular season and stuff like that. But we already know they're a good team. They won 44 games and went to the play-in tournament a couple years ago. They won 51 last year and went to the playoffs. Their judgment is going to come in April. What JB does in that seven-game series against whoever it is in the first round That ultimately is what this front office is going to evaluate. That ultimately is what the fans are going to look at. Because there aren't as many questions about J.B. Bickerstaff, the regular season coach. There aren't as many questions about the Cleveland Cavaliers, the regular season team. There are questions about J.B. Bickerstaff, the tactician in a seven-game series. J.B. Bickerstaff, the in-game adjuster in a seven-game series, not the regular season. There are questions about J.B. Bickerstaff and his use of timeouts, and his use of the rotation, and all those different things in a playoff series. And that doesn't mean that people don't have questions about him when it comes to the regular season, and it doesn't mean they're not going to criticize some of the things that he does wrong in the regular season. But his final judgment, and this team's final judgment, is not going to come for a couple of months. Until then, Everybody's just going to remember what happened in the playoff series against the Knicks and every slip up that the Cavs have in the regular season and every mistake, perceived mistake, that JB makes in the regular season is going to be nitpicked to the nth degree. Doesn't matter if they won 50 games. Seriously, it won't matter. So let's call for some pause and patience with Cavs fans across the globe. Let's wait until the playoffs. Give Chris some credit. He know what he's talking about. We're going to wait till the playoffs, wait till the postseason, and see where the Cavs are standing. And look, if things go poorly and they do not get out of the first round of these playoffs coming up, and this all assumes that they're going to make the playoffs, if they do not get out of the first round of the playoffs, then this organization is going to have to consider changes. And that will be a serious conversation. But until then... That wraps up the Wine and Gold Talk podcast for today. I'm your host, Ethan Sands. Had some fun today with Chris Fedor. That is a wrap. Y'all stay safe. But before we leave, make sure you subscribe to Subtech. Sign up for a 14-day free trial. Visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page to subscribe. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's simple. But we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because that is the best way to become a Cavs insider with me and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all stay safe. Peace out.